Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, it's my pleasure uh, uh, as the director of the Sustainability Solutions Institute at UCSD to welcome you uh, to this uh, uh, Greenovation Forum on uh, water. Uh, this uh, one is uh, Water We Eat. Uh, and uh, it's uh, the last in our series that has been very generously supported by the Scripps uh, Foundation for Science and the Environment. Uh, and uh, we've had, I believe, a very successful series, and uh, I, will, I hope this one will, will uh, continue that uh, tradition. So it's my pleasure to introduce uh, the first speaker. Uh, I'm going to give short uh, introductions because I believe you can read their bios in the, in the handout. Uh, but we're very pleased to have Dr. Alet Tegnizi, who's uh, uh, in the uh, uh, UC uh, San Diego Ready School of Management. Uh, she's a professor of marketing, uh, and she's going to be our first speaker. So, so good afternoon, everyone. I give a forward warning uh, to the people who invited me here that I won't be talking about the water we eat because I really have nothing to say about it. Um, yeah. But I have some, some things to say about, some thoughts about uh, a more general problem. And what I'm going to talk about today, hopefully, provide some insights, is why we don't care. So the general notion being why all of us here care so much, and we may be under the impression that, yeah, there is a huge force here going forward in terms of sustainability and caring for the environment. But if we look outside our small world, we know that this is not the case. So there are very many people who simply don't care or seem not to care. And what we're trying to understand, uh, based on previous research that was done in terms of how people, you know, people's perception, judgment, decision-making, we try to take what we know from there and actually apply it to the domain of um, the environment, sustainability. So thinking about the problem, uh, you can think about it uh, being twofold. One is, you know, we need to do something about the environment. If we don't do anything, we'll run out of uh, resources. But the... Stemming out of that is that people seem not to care. And when I'm saying we seem not to care, it's really the majority. So the majority of people seem not to care. So what I will try to do today, I will suggest some reason why that may be the case, why that's the reason. And I'm very careful in suggesting what we should be doing because it's not that I have the solutions, but I will try to provide some ways to think about how we, how we, may, how we might want to think about approaching solutions, potential solutions. So first of all, if you think about the setting, uh, it's not the U.S., it's us. And us is very small, and it's not uh, by chance that it's small. Because around us, there are all kinds of um, organization people that try to communicate, to communicate to us and tell us that we should do something for the, for the environment. So you can think about uh, not-for-profit organizations, for-profit organizations. We'll cover a bit of those later. So not-for-profit is us and every other non-profit organization, uh, Greenpeace, etc., uh, for profits, Walmart is doing a lot, Whole Foods is doing a lot, so companies that actually make money and also try to educate us and make us better consumers. Uh, government, municipalities, and others, I don't have any here. If anyone has specific suggestions, I'm happy um, to think about them. Now, thinking about a consumer, if you're trying to think who the consumer who, or who it, us is essentially is, uh, you can think about the fact that it's an individual, and it's even more uh, useful to think about it in terms of a person. So try to really imagine a person, your grandmother, your mother, your neighbor, your, your bus driver. Each of these is actually the person that we're trying to talk to. 
And that person has a lot of things on their minds, right? So they have a job or don't have a job, which is even worse. Uh, they have responsibilities. They have kids. They have problems. They are being solicited for other purposes as well, all the time. So you can think about the average person sitting at home and being asked all the time to give to the Cancer Association and uh, uh, for kids with autism and for the environment. And the environment is not really one big you know, chunk, right? So the environment can be divided to many, many sub issues that we need, sub-topics we need to, consi- we need to consider. Uh, so does the consumer care? Yes, I believe the consumers essentially care, but there are many things standing in consumers' ability to actually relate to the problem, and even once they did relate to the problem, to do something about it. And we do know from research that although attitude have some correlation to behavior, so can lead to behavior, it's not necessarily the same if you're required to exert a lot, a lot, a lot of effort. So let's try and see what's uh, affecting the consumer. Uh, one thing, and I'm going to throw many things here, and at the end I'll try to bring them together to some kind of you know, recommendations or ideas. So one thing that all, happens to all of us is the, the drop in the bucket, right? So I think, well, this piece of paper that I'm carrying in my head now cannot really make any difference. It just can't make much difference. So I'll just put it in the trash because it's just next to me and it's easier. One thing. So we don't attribute our behavior to a more general problem, a more general solution. Um, so we choose to maintain the status quo. And related to the status quo, you can, and I won't go much into loss aversion theory, but the general idea is that we like to maintain status quo. Status quo is what we know, what we're, what we're familiar with, what we feel comfortable with, and we'd rather generally not change our behavior, right? So you go home usually driving the same way. Maybe not the best way, but still you choose to go that way because that's what you're familiar with. That's what you feel comfortable doing. Just the same, I'm used to do many things, right? I'm, I'm used to drive my car and not carpool with anyone else other than my husband. And I prefer to do many things that maybe are not good for the environment, but still kind of maintain my small status quo, right? Which is comfortable for me. Another thing which is related to something I will mention a bit later, is uh, the identifiability effect. And it, it has been shown in the, in the past that people don't relate to big problems. Right? If you, tell, you can think about solicitation for donations that we often see. If you tell people, uh, donate for the Cancer Association, that's something that some people would like to do, but more people are more likely to feel related or really care about a single person. So you bring a person of a story and you tell, look, this is so-and-so, it can be Mary or anyone else, and she's 18-year-old, 5-year-old, she can even be 24-year-old, and you reveal her the story of her life and you make some kind of a connection between the person and not statistics and the problem, and people are much more, uh, feel much more uh, related to the problem and want to do something about it, which in the sense of the environment, I hope you all agree with me, that we don't feel related to the environment in that way. It's kind of, again, a big concept that is very tough to relate to. Under the... Heading of temporal effects uh, are three things here. And probably the, so the first and the last one are very much related to one another. Uh, the general idea is in terms of hyperbolic discounting, we do know that people prefer smaller immediate gains, right, than later larger gains. They do it with kids, you know, they tell, go to kids in kindergarten. This is, by the way, a way to measure uh, IQ with kids. So they go to kids in kindergarten and they tell them, do you want one piece of chocolate today or three tomorrow? Now, if a child can actually delay the gratification and postpone it for tomorrow, the prediction for higher IQ is, you know, it's better, right? Uh, generally, all of us, we like immediate gratification. We don't like to wait. 
especially, and this is not mentioned in this first uh, point, where the, delay, the, the greater delayed payoffs really require effort. It's not that, okay, we'll wait until we get something. It's, we don't just sit and wait for the environment to get better. We're asked to do a lot in order to make it better. Um, the construal level theory essentially uh, relates to the point that we think about what will happen tomorrow in very specific terms. So I'm looking at my calendar tomorrow, right? And I'm saying, okay, tomorrow I have this and that, and I break everything to small details. Everything is very, very specific. But I cannot do the same for the future. It's just not within our ability to do it. So this can explain what many of you probably experienced in your life, is that uh, you commit to go and give a lecture, say, in the East Coast, in a year from now, and now it looks like, yeah, something I would like to do, and I will have time to do, because now I don't have time. But as the time approaches, you realize that really you don't have time to do, and you don't want to do it, and it happens again and again to all of us in, in, in accepting obligations and making obligations, commitments for the future. And the general myopia is just that generally we're myopic. We are self-centered, we bracket our decisions very narrowly, we don't think big, we think very small, very within our small worlds. Now, uh, related to the... Uh, to the, to the construal level theory point, is this last thing in which um, seeing the future is something we cannot do, right? So if you ask someone to visualize what will happen in 50 years when the, you know, the climate changes and everything goes crazy, I cannot do it, and I seriously don't want to do it, because what's the point? You're telling me it will be bad? Okay, so it will be bad. Let me deal with my mortgage now, with my kids, one not going want to go to school, the other one hitting and punching in school. This is plenty for me. I, I don't have to deal with this, right? Um, so what do we get out of this? We get a cognitively limited, busy, and confused individual, right? That's what we have. That's what we have to deal with. We don't have anything better than that. Uh, and what we ask them to do, we ask them to understand quite a bit, because without understanding, they cannot be part of this. We ask them to care about many things. We ask them to do many things, and we ask them to change their habits. Now you tell me if this makes sense. We just can't do it. You, can, you can't go to people and ask them to do all of that, and yet we have to ask them to do all of that. Now, just to add to this, if you remember the circles that we had before, if you just consider the role of the non-for-profit, so the, on the good side, what they do is they increase awareness, they suggest ways how we can make things better, how one can make things better, but they do ask for our money and time, right? They do ask us to do things in return, and there are many players. Now, the numbers are heavier for the non-for-profit organizations just pulled out of the Wikipedia page, actually sat down and I counted them today. Uh, and I'm sure it's not an exhaustive list. I'm sure there is much more. So how, why do we need so many? Right? And, and it's enough that more than one approaches me or communicates with me, asking me to do something, that's too much. One is enough. And I usually get more than one. And also multiple messages. Right? Uh, you can think about uh, the water, the earth, rainforests, wildlife, the oceans, the beaches. And the list is, is much, much, much longer. So that that's, helps, you know, confuse consumers. For-profits, some of them actually do a very good job. I don't know if you saw the last uh, brochure by, uh, of Walmart that was distributed in uh, various magazines. And it was good in the sense that it, it told us um, what, can be, uh, what is the problem, what the individual can do, and what result, what benefit we all will get if each individual of their consumers, for that sake, will do that. So they actually quantified the, 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 the utility or the benefit of following a certain way to behave. But there is a problem with Walmart, right? I mean, the image, the trust that we have, or to that case, to that uh, point, do not have toward the company. You can think about Whole Foods, right? Maybe we trust them, 
but it's a rip-off, right? We know that we're paying way too much. So, so you care about the environment or you care about your, your pocket, right? About your bottom line. And people don't know what to do with this. You're, you're conflicted. You don't know what to do. Hotel towers. This is a project undergoing. Uh, how come they're asking me not uh, to reuse my towels? Seriously. If they want me to, and this is consumer's perception, not my perception, mine too, but you know. If they want me you not know, to, to wash uh, the towel you know, every day, they want me because it concerns the environment and everything, I want them to show me that they are accountable too. I want them to show me that the money that they save, save from each towel is going to go for some good purpose, right? It's not money that is going to go into their pocket because if they are going to benefit from it and the environment... Then I'm like thinking, okay, environment, the hotel, environment, okay, I don't care. Some people will say, I don't care. Some that do care, that have the disposition to care, would care. But the rest who are essentially don't care, they want this one to make them care. They just care for their comfort, especially if they paid a lot of money. Um, and finally, governments and municipalities, uh, they, they also do great things, but again, there are uh, some problems. They're very bureaucratic. If you go to the San Diego County webpage to see what kind of rebates you can get, well, you can't do that. You can't do that. You have to go for links and within the links to go to more links and you just give up. You can't do that. So this is not something that is really inviting. The initial costs that are required for, from you in order to be part of this, you know, if you want to put uh, solar systems in your house, and they tell you it will repay itself in 20 years. I don't want to be repay, to, uh, to repay in 20 years. I want something now, right? It, I'm willing to sacrifice something but I want an immediate return, some kind of a return now. In terms of setting a good example, you know when you drive and you see uh, the landscaping in La Jolla and you see the, the golf courses uh, and they keep telling you, you know, we're going to cut your, uh, your, your water your usage and put restrictions on water usage, that's kind of annoying. I mean, you, you can't do that. You have to decide either we have a problem and everyone is going to be part of this problem, everyone has to make some sacrifices, or we don't have a problem, and then, you know, if you, if you care, you do something. If you don't care, you don't do something. But, but, but you can't speak those two voices, right? one voice which, which tells me, this is very important, you can wash your car only after 8 p.m., but the golf course is seriously very important. We have to go in and water it, right? So, so, you, so, so you can do this. And this is, if you think about the confused customer from before, consumer, this is just adding more and more and more and more. So how can we promote the right, so to speak, the right behavior? So... Um, if you're talking about facilitating the right behavior, if you want people to uh, not to drive their own cars, you know, each of them, each person in a car, you know, facilitate, but really facilitate. Make sure that there is good public transportation. If I want to go from La Jolla, Mount Soledad, to campus, which is a very short drive, there's no way for me to do this with public transportation. I have to take my car, especially with my child, and I can't pull with anyone because my youngest goes to school at 9. Seriously, everyone is at work by 8.30, right? So I have no one to go to work with. So that's a problem. Bike lanes. These are just a few examples. You have to be consistent in terms, and this I'm, I'm talking in terms of the institutional and corporate levels, what they can do. Set an example, be accountable, uh, create some sense of partnership. So instead of telling me what to do, bring me closer, make me part of the problem. Ask me what I think I can do within my limits, what I think I want to do. And that's, of course, after telling me something about it. There is this notion of people preaching to us all the time and telling us what should be done. That's not very helpful. Right? You want people to be a part of the solution, not just to do what you tell them to do. Um, more at the individual level, uh, we have to try and think about ways to increase the relevance. Right? You have to make, and I seriously don't have a solution to that, but we have to make it not something that will happen in 50, 100 years for our great, 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 great grandchildren. Because this is something that 
is not great, but not very bad. Who knows what will happen? You know, a meteorite will fall on the Earth in 20 years, and that will be the end of it. Right? So why worry about 50 years <laughs> from now? Uh, think about framing, right? Instead of, for example, talking about um, carbon taxes, you can think about you know, purchasing carbon offsets, which is the same, but sounds very differently to people. People think about it in a very, very different way. Again, the sense of partnership. Providing feedback, very, very important. If you ask, and this is generally, you know, for non-for-profit, if you ask for my money, if you ask for my time, if you ask me to do anything and I do it, get back to me. Tell me what you did with, me, with my effort, with my time, with anything, right? So if, if, if my money was able to actually save the child or was able to purchase so-and-so carbon offsets, I need to know about it because, A, I know it's transparent and it was used for what I, I was, it was promised to, to be used for, but in addition to that, I feel like, wow, I'm really making a difference. Why don't I go and do yeah, the next step or give a bit more? Uh, you can create a new language, right? So you can, you can set, set a trend, right? You can say, let's talk about carbon footprint kind of accounts or idea that everyone talks about and everyone should be proud or uh, showing off with how little you know, carbon footprint they have, how small, instead of you know, just being something that most people don't even know of. Um, Provide simple and appealing incentives. You know, rebates are nice, but they go one way. You can simply pay people to use less gas. I mean, if, that, if, that's, if you want people to use less electricity, tell them that if you use less, you get money, right? Just incentivize them. We know that incentives work. What we know more about incentives is that if you use incentives cash, not anything funny and weird, you give people cash by which you, uh, you kind of... It yeah, relates to habit formation, so you learn them to change their habits. At the end of the day, when you remove the, the incentive, people will continue to behave this way. If you do it long enough, if they just get into the habit of behaving that, behaving that way. So try and influence the way people behave. Um, and just, you know, help us to understand, right? So uh, use a one voice, focus just on one thing at a time. Let's decide that this is the year of water. We're going to be, uh, only be concerned with, with water conservation. Nothing else, because we can do more than that. So help people relate to the problem. Be specific. If you want me to do something, say water. Tell me exactly what. Tell me shower only three minutes. Tell me when you wash your dishes, do this and don't do that. Uh, you want me to not to have my, my appliances on standby, tell me that. Because tell me what I have to do, because I don't know what to do. I don't know. Even if I care, often I don't know what to do. Try to provide visual representations. As I said before, just help uh, uh, visualize what it will look like. And I know some computing, uh, some uh, websites are trying to do that, but then they get to the preaching part. I saw a few today. Seriously, they do a very good job until they come to the point that they are like just too much. It's like a religious religion, you know, religious, religious, religious thing. Uh, and just last thing. Uh, Generally about communicating, and, it's, and, and, and this is a serious issue, you should understand that you can't talk to everyone the same way. I mean, you should tell them the same thing if that's what you decide that you have to do. But different people behave, you know, respond to different things, that they care about different things. So 15-year-olds versus 18-year-olds versus people who went to the Peace Corps, people who will never think of going to the Peace Corps, people at Wall Street, people West Coast, East Coast, we are very different people. So this should affect everything. It should affect how we approach them, in a way, what we tell them, what, what kind of means of communications we choose to talk to them, everything, everything should be affected by that, and do your research, because I'm guessing there's a lot of lack of feedback coming back of, we did that, how did that work, was it good enough, is this a way to go, or maybe we should change. I think many companies are just doing and not learning. And that's it.
Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm a little scared uh, <laughs> by this last uh, one. But, uh, so the next uh, speaker is Scott Murray, who uh, uh, is uh, the president uh, of the Board of Directors of uh, Mission Resorts Conservation District in Fulbright. So, uh, Scott. Good day, folks. It's a, pl- a pleasure to be here. I was going to uh, start with an advertisement for slow food which is a wonderful old image of uh, Americana, Lady Liberty, um, casting seeds. And uh, one of the the real keys is this concept of local. Um, And it's a concept we're returning to. I've found that I've officially become a codger. Um, And uh, my wife said, you know, you just got to let go. The kids are moving faster than you and you can't keep up. Um, so what I do in my day job is I'm an organic farmer and, and a chef, um, and I love to cook. I love to inspire people to eat. I teach food literacy, and I teach vocational literacy. Uh, my students are um, foster teenagers. They are in a very innovative and experimental uh, school in the San Pasqual Valley um, where we teach them Um, in a different environment. Foster kids are kids that are basically being raised by government, which is a very interesting concept. Here in San Diego County, we have about 4,500 kids that are being raised by government right now. Um, It causes me to shudder. (laughs) But what we've done at the San Pasquale Academy is we've created an environment where the kids can be brought together so that they're, they're with kids of a similar ilk, Uh, They have an opportunity to uh, not stand out and be different, um, but they have an opportunity to have the environment focused on their success. Um, One of the things that I'd like to start with is a couple of questions. Um, I'm interested in in people raising their hands. Who has a farmer in their family? One, two, three. Wow. Now, this is good. We we actually have a chance of surviving in this room because the number of farmers has gotten down to 2% in the United States. Now, who has actually grown some food that they've eaten? Ooh, we even have a better chance of surviving. Um, And and a last one, but the age of the group kind of defines the answer, but we're going to see. Who doesn't know how to cook a balanced meal? It, don't be shy. Don't be shy to raise your hand because um, this is something that we've not been successful at teaching in recent years. Um, so what, what I was asked to speak about is the importance of water or the water we eat. And in my world, the water we eat is um, the, the key thing. I mean, we all eat. I think that's pretty well clearly established here, unless there's a real stiff in the room. Um, <laughs> that we're all customers for food. Without food, we, we would really be in bad shape in three days. Um, you know, you can go without water for a little bit longer, but, but going without food for three days really gets your attention focused very seriously. Um, and, you know, we're basically 95% water. Um, 
so, you know, we're, we're 95, 97% water. Some of us maybe even a little bit more, some a little less. Um, and uh, you've seen pictures of people who've suffered, you know, great deprivation and their body shrinks up. It's a dramatic thing that can happen. Um, you know, but it's, it's still a true statement that we are what we eat, you know. Um, we're, we're almost all water and, and we're, we're, we're totally made up of what we eat. Um, and then I sell food in fancy, you know, I sell water in fancy packages. The food that we grow is just water in fancy packages. <laughs> you know, when, when it really comes down to it, um, it, without water, it would all be dried up and we really wouldn't be very excited by it. Um, but we also make it elegant. I'm an organic farmer. I, I have... Um, return to a consciousness. I'm, I'm on the cutting edge of a 27,000-year-old technology. Um, and I'm still working to understand it, um, but the history is something that, that really appeals to me. Um, and right now, wh- one of the things that I do is I'm still a book person. And I'm understanding that that's coming, you know, it's going out of vogue. I should get it all on a Kindle. Um, but this is one of my favorite books in my collection of books, and it's called Dry Farming. You know, wow, what do you do with, without water? Well, we always had no water. I mean, this all comes to us now because of the miracle of investment in systems to move the water around. But in the old days, it was all dry land farming. And, and there's a history to San Diego County that's pretty extraordinary, and it's in this bag of lima beans that we grew out on our farm. But San Diego County used to be one of the biggest spots in the United States for producing lima beans. All along the coastal plain from here north to Camp Pendleton were dry land lima bean farms. Very few people know that. You know, and then it was replaced once irrigation was put in and all of our irrigation systems that we have are a result of investing in producing water. I got to go to Washington last year to speak uh, on a hearing, in a hearing in global warming with, uh, for Barbara Boxer. Um, it's really cool to have your first visit to Washington as the guest of a senator. <laughs> and then to get to have lunch with her in the Senate dining room. Um, but we are at the cutting edge of this time of figuring out how to live within our means. Um, and that is, is a pretty revolutionary concept because we've been doing a great job of living outside our means. Um, one of the things about Slow Food as an organization is that it was inspired and started because we were looking at um, a McDonald's being put on the plaza where the, the, tre- the, the Trevi Fountain is in Rome. And uh, people were saying, you know, isn't this too much? to have a McDonald's right here in the heart of all of this history. Um, and so they begin to look. Well, what are we losing You know, with fast food? What are we losing? Well, number one, we're losing diversity. We're losing flavor and taste. And we're getting a lot of things that we really don't need. Uh, now that I'm 55, you know, I've got to be concerned about my salt intake and my cholesterol intake and a number of other things that influence my future. Um, and McDonald's and fast food places are just not the place for me to go. Now hardly any restaurant is the place for me to go because they're even using way too much salt. Um, it was on the web yesterday, shocking salt you know, content of restaurant-produced food. 
Well, once you cut your salt down, you really notice it. You know, even when you ask, you know, please add no extra salt to my food. It's like, whoa, oh my gosh. So we're, we're looking, you know, how can we establish, this is the founder of uh, Slow Food, that was Carlo Petrini, with Jeff Jackson, the, the chef of the Lodge of Torrey Pines across the street. Um, so Slow Food has a, has a motto for their international efforts called Good, Clean, and Fair. And they feel that all food should, should fit into that paradigm. You know, is it good for us? Was it clean to produce? Did it leave an impact on the environment that's positive and contributes to the future? And was it fair? You know, now we can buy fair trade coffee, for example. Um, and that's a very important thing because we're, we're making a difference with that incremental choice of impacting um, someone that's living in, in one of the countries around the world that, that is producing coffee. And many times those producers are producing at a cost where they're, they're not even making a decent living in their culture. And that's very different than ours. I also like the concept of just equitable and sustainable because is it just in, in all so many ways that it could be, you know, just for the environment, just for people, just for our culture. Right now our food produ production system in the United States is not just because we rely upon imported labor that is in a, in a paradox created illegally so that the, the employers can sometimes exploit that opportunity um, to keep those laborers down on the farm. These are some interns that I have had on my project um, from uh, foreign countries. The, they were from Peru and Ecuador. I've had interns from Sri Lanka, Thailand, um, Kenya, Malawi, um, and uh, they bring such a, a, a zest as they come to learn about American organic agriculture and as we work to learn from them. Um, Another of my big concerns is that the amount of water it takes to grow a crop um, is really connected to the food value of that crop um, and, and, and what we call the calorie ratio. Are we getting our money's worth? Um, some people are saying that, that the most sustainable diet is one that is vegetarian or even vegan where, where animals, the production of animals consumes too many resources. But we have to look at the difference between uh, a paradigm that started in the early days of the United States. We are an agricultural nation. That's two words fused together, agra and culture. But at the end of World War II, in the wisdom of that time, we cut our culture loose and we put business there. And now our, our food production has been organized around the concept of business. Not that that's a bad thing because we've done amazing things with that. Um, when President Nixon was in power in the United States and Earl Butts was our Secretary of Agriculture, um, he, um, one of the things that we did during that time is we used food as an economic weapon. We had stores of food that provided the world a backdrop. We had five years worth of food stored at that time. Now we only have seven days worth of food stored. In the wisdom of the Bush administration, they decided that we could turn over the, the storage of our food to private industry. So Cargill and ADM took over the responsibility of storing food. And they quickly realized that there was no economic advantage to having a large store of food which buffered the price. So once they reduced the store of food to seven-tenths of one percent of a year's need in just the United States, 
we saw these wild swings in the last couple of years where, where food prices soared outrageously. So what we're, what we're looking at is how do we harmonize? How do we bring this back? We're all feeling the effects of climate change, you know, and that's going to change the water. It's changing it already. Our, our, our water cycle, our normal farming cycle is way out of whack and farmers all over are feeling the, the pinch and don't know how to respond. So what, what I'm an advocate of is incremental change and we really need to roll that out on a massive level. And a good example of incremental change is someone who drives a hybrid car, for example. That's an incremental change in reducing their impact. Um, but probably the most powerful single thing we could do is to get everybody to start a garden at their home again. Because we're spending such a great amount of money to grow food all over the United States and then ship it all over the United States. And it's kind of an irrational system. I know a farmer in, in Michigan that produces wheat that sends it to Southern California to get it milled and then it goes back to Montana to get pressed into flakes and shipped back to Michigan to go into to cereal boxes. You know, so it's already got 2,400 miles on it before it gets in the box and into the distribution system. So we have the opportunity to look at how our individual actions add up to changing the world. And you know, it used to be we could talk about it. I, I got my start at UC um, right after Rachel Carson's book came out, uh, Silent Spring, and it influenced my whole career. Um, it was a, a dramatic book um, because I began to look and I didn't want the chemicals in my diet. So I became an organic farmer and that's been an amazing thing. And now my time is really coming because organic management of the soil is one way we can rebuild the soil that's been damaged by chemical use. And that chemical use is, is dramatic. When we put chemicals in the soil, it creates an effect called cementification, where it, it changes the, the, literally the molecular structure of the soil and the cation exchange. Um, I've hosted now four delegations from the Chinese Ministry of Agriculture. They've come over here to look at organic farming. And when the minister came, I challenged him. I said, you know, you guys, according to the data that we've gotten, have been using four times the chemicals per acre that the United States is using. And he said, no. Actually, it was a state secret till last year, but we've been using eight times the chemicals. <laughs> so China is just 77,000 square miles larger than the United States, not much more than Southern California in difference. But they have quite a few more people than us, but only one quarter of the agricultural land. And then that agricultural land, they've, they've used up almost 25% of it to develop the industries and, and expand the cities that are changing the dynamic of, of their need for food. Now they've also raised the economic level of their citizens. They want more. They're not happy just with one bowl of rice uh, three times a day. They want meat. So it's, it's consuming more resources. So China's coming to the United States for some of their food, but they're investing very heavily in Africa and Southeast Asia in farmland. And, Pay attention because that's going in a huge way to increase because the cementification of their soil has damaged their ability to produce food in a dramatic way. And I talked to the minister. I said, well, we have to take you all organic. That will solve the problem. It'll take us about seven years to rebuild the soil. He says, another little problem. 
We make the budget for the Ministry of Agriculture by running the chemical factories that make chemical fertilizer. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so the problems that we face are very interesting. It all comes down to water. No water, no food. We all want some food. And one of the things we can do is to begin to use the water we have. You know, I'll bet this campus has 60 acres of roofs on it. But I'll bet there are no cisterns on this campus collecting that rooftop runoff. 60 acre feet of water could produce enough food to feed all the students on this campus. We need to change our look about that. One of the incremental things we could do all over California, because it's not a technological wonder, is put cisterns on every roof. Um, I did a, a study at, at, for Sony in Rancho Bernardo where we looked at using their underutilized land to produce food for their high-value workers. And uh, we were going to reclaim water, 24 acres of roofs on the, their facility. We could get 24 acre feet of water, which could produce all the food we need. And when they had a color cathode ray picture tube plant there, we had enough heat to heat five acres of greenhouses year-round. So we could have made it. Well, we built a little tiny model not a very big one, because they really weren't as advanced as they wanted to be. Um, but I encourage a massive implementation of incremental actions that each of us can do. You know, everybody should have compact fluorescent lights in every fixture. At Fry's, they're 29 cents now, you know, with the SDG&E rebate. It's amazing. Um, we should all look at how we can grow something to eat. And everybody has enough room, one glass, one quart jar could produce sprouts. You could become a farmer in five days. <laughs> and the, the key is we have the opportunity to optimize every one of our subsystems. And we have to figure out a way to inspire the people to do that. And I'd like to close with a, a quote. We travel together, passengers on a little spaceship, dependent on vulnerable supplies of air, water, and soil preserved from annihilation only by the care, the work, and I will say the love we give our fragile craft. And that is from Adlai Stevenson. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you very much. We've had two uh, fascinating and uh, provocative uh, introductory talks, and we're now going to have two responses. And the first is uh, by Jim Mumford, who is a uh, floral and plant designer, and he tells me that he's been to everyone but one of these uh, forums this uh, year, so uh, he beats my record, and I'm very pleased to welcome him here. Thank you. Well, I, I certainly like those pictures of San Pasquale Valley. I've passed through quite a bit, and I've always wondered who farms there, who lives there. Um, thank you so much for inviting me today. The uh, water certainly is in the news. If you picked up the Union Tribune this morning, there was a couple articles about it, the the desalinization plant up in Carlsbad, they're going through more permit issues. Um, the Green Innovation has been a great program. I, there's a fact I took away that I've still stuck in my head is a third of our energy use in California is used to pump water. I thought that was a phenomenal amount. Um, for survival, people are moving more and more to the cities, and that's where the jobs are. And eventually that's going to help save some energy and some resources because they aren't traveling so far. And real estate's becoming more of a premium, and so we're building up. And as we cover over our, our land, where do we grow the crops that we're going to eat? Um, 
And at the same time, what you mentioned, Scott, is, is transporting. How far are we willing to transport our produce? Uh, somebody told me a while ago that a lot of what we get here in San Diego that we eat comes from South America. And a lot of what we produce here locally goes to the East Coast. And kind of like your scenario with the, the wheat coming here, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. The last 30 years, we've been, been doing containerized plants and potted plants, and that's been mostly tropicals and, and uh, inside work. And the last few years, it's gone more and more outside, then it got up onto a rooftop. And for the last four years, we've been looking at green roofs or eco roofs. And it's one, to me, one gigantic pot. It's very flat and very shallow, but all the things we've been worried about from waterproofing to growing plants in confined space um, makes sense to me. And it's, it's, it's uh, excited me. And then interestingly, in the last year or so, maybe even less, has become more in vogue to grow your own vegetables, that's the questions we keep going. We want to grow vegetables up on the roof. That creates some problems. There's occupancy issues. If you're going to be up there tending a garden and you're on top of a roof, there's safety issues. There's load-bearing issues. How much does that weigh? And again, it goes right back to water. Where are we going to get that water from? And San Diego has the purple pipe program that I'd prefer to call showers to flowers. <laughs> but the, the distribution is really very limited. You can't get to it. Uh, gray water. Uh, you can use gray water and purple pipe on growing vegetables. What I understand is the toxins aren't passed through, but it's illegal. So if you look at what the, the municipalities are doing to us, they're not helping us. And, and maybe I start growing lima beans. You know, I like that. Uh, you know, as we look at, at growing vegetables on top of a roof, and I realized that was going to be problematic, we started looking at vertical farming. And that's manifested in a green wall or a living wall. A little easier to do. Um, maybe one of our first clients would be the marine room. So I show pictures of that. Uh, Chef Ron over there is very excited about the idea of you know, doing a wall that's made out of uh, primarily salad items and, and herbs. And we just did a mock-up recently that uh, we harvested our first salad off of. And I have to say it was the best $1,000 salad I've ever eaten. <laughs> Assuming I get a few more. Otherwise, it's a $3,000 salad. Uh, and we're some, so we're doing some different trials over at our, at our uh, facility, and we've got uh, three or four different kinds of roof products and a couple of different kinds of wall products. Um, but I still have questions like, you know, just how much yield can we get off a small garden? Does it justify that water use? And how much can I produce per square foot? Um, you know, architects these days are designing some incredible buildings, and they're using plants to filter the air. They're using them to cool them down. Uh, they're ultimately going to use them to feed the occupants. Um, kind of going to what Professor Gnizzi was talking about, why don't we care? And I thought that was amazing. Um, I guess I'm traveling in circles that's, that people are all talking about sustainability and low-impact development, and so I thought everybody cared. You know, why is that an issue? And I think that that, uh, that behavioral shift is going to come from, you know, maybe right now the person down the street that's... that's uh, Saving their resources, maybe they're the oddball right now, and that's going to shift. You're going to be the oddball if you're not saving your resources. Uh, I used to live on a well and talk about a behavioral change that kicked in. Our neighbors were running out of water. Some of the wells weren't working, so they were bringing in truckloads. When you pay for a truckload of water, you're pretty tight with that. Uh, and then the other side of that is <laughs> we could hear the, the, the pump kick on when the the well was working, and so it immediately told me how much water I was using, so I would stop. Uh, you also talked about communication, and there was a program not too long ago that uh, we got a form in the Union Tribune said, here, write a little anonymous, anonymous note and take it to your neighbor and tell them their, their water's running into the street. And, gosh, I hope I know my neighbors a little better than that. 
the one thing I didn't hear is, is uh, we're, many of us consume meat and, and fowl and poultry, et cetera, so we didn't talk really about the water that they consume in order to be able to produce that. Um, that pretty much wraps me up. Thanks. Thank you very much. And now I'll ask uh, Matt Finkelston to, uh, to respond. He's uh, alumnus of uh, UC San Diego and the community advisor for the Sustainable Food Project here. So, Matt. Well, as possibly the youngest speaker in our uh, cohort tonight, um, I, I'm, I'm especially attuned to uh, the challenges that uh, my generation, our generation, um, will uh, inherit in the future. Um, the issues of, of water and food bring us back to our most deepest concern of uh, essentially survival. Um, you, guys ever, you guys remember the, what your mom used to tell you, you are what you eat. Well, that is, that is very, very true. We are what we eat. We are the plants that we eat. And what the plants eat is the ground, the air, and the water. Um, the challenges that we're going to face are undoubtedly uncertain. Uh, many of the effects of how we've so changed and manipulated this earth are going to remain to be seen until several generations down the line. In that sense, sustainability is a long-term ideal, and it needs a long-term approach, as well as a short-term, as well as many uh, short-term considerations. Um, given that we don't know how it's essentially going to play out, sustainability is also a term-seeking definition. Um, we don't know how many of the, the, the pollutants and, um, uh, and changes to this earth, um, how they're going to play out on ourselves, on other species, and how the balance is going to be restored. Uh, Dr. Nisi, you, you mentioned that you, know, you were talking about why we don't care and, and that we, we have many con confused consumers. Um, I believe that, that we have a confused society, and, and I think that that really stems from a perceived disconnection from the earth on a societal, uh, cultural, and individual level. This, this notion that we are somehow different from the earth, um, it's something that has unfortunately been propagated um, through many generations. Um, and and, it, and it, is, it has essentially brought us to this point, um, the dominance, the control, the manipulation, the fact that we have almost nearly elevated ourselves to being godlike creatures. But as we're now seeing now, we are not different from this earth, and we are going to feel the effects of, of our actions and our perception as such. So not knowing what's going to happen, what is, what is the solution? And for that, I'd like to refer back to uh, one of our previous uh, speakers, Dr. Wesley Schultz, who really underscored that, that the solution is holistic and integrated. It is big, it is long-term, yet highly specified. And if I may, I'd like to, to quote uh, uh, one of my favorite authors, uh, Stephen Harding, who was a a student of James Lovelock who uh, uh, coined the, the Gaia theory. In the back he says, uh, in the end he says, I can hear you thinking that all of this probably sounds like a typical hippy-dippy hippy pipe dream. Laudable but totally impractical. Im impractical. Am I really saying that everything will work out just fine if we get ourselves into straw bale houses in the countryside growing our own vegetables and chickens? Wouldn't it be nice if it were that simple? Alas, it isn't, because we need some drastic action to curb carbon dioxide emissions before the critical thresholds are crossed. Perhaps they're crossed already. Some people will need to pioneer feasible, enjoyable, and post-industrial planet-friendly planet lifestyles. Others will have to work on 
solving the severe problems of energy pr- food provision and sea level rise that will come uh, that will come about as a result of climate change. Others will have to work on reforming or dismantling the major instruments of the war against nature. So with that, I'm a firm believer, and, and uh, I think many of us are, that, that more people need to be involved in this, and more people need to be talking about this. Our group, our, our forum right here, is an excellent advocate to bring us to um, this, this next evolution of our species. Um, and, and through that, what I really think that we need to cultivate um, uh, uh, understanding this holistic and integrated approach um, is that within the big picture and the small specificity um, that we, we need to essentially reintegrate ourselves into this ecosystem and into this planet. Um, and that's, that's what we've sought to do uh, here on campus and here within the community. Um, our group, uh, the Sustainable Food Project at UCSD, um, has, a, has a wonderful initiative called the UCSD Urban Farm. The essential vision of this is to create a, a vibrant experiential learning center here on campus um, that, that educates the community about the principles of growing a food and also the greater picture of large. Through digging your hand, there's kind of almost like an emotional response as well as a conceptual and logical um, uh, uh, sensation um, to understanding and reintegrating your place on this earth. And I think that the, um, the multiplicity of benefits that can arise from um, food education and empowerment that we're all kind of working on um, is so tremendous. Um, like I said earlier, you are what you eat. Food is our most direct connection to the earth and to each other. And so food education and empowerment um, is really just a catalyst for um, a greater progressive social change uh, and environmental change and really earth change um, to recognize that we live in this closed system and that we need to restore balance. So with that, thank you again for having me. And I uh, look forward to uh, talking with you more at the panel and afterwards. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.